This is episode 540 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. It appears we as a culture and as a nation may have tested the patience of God one time too many. We have, for example, murdered over 60 million innocent unborn children in their mother's womb, while the church has basically remained silent. And as Ruth Graham once said, if God doesn't judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Just this week, at the Supreme Court ruling regarding Roe v. Wade, President Biden signed an executive order basically promoting abortion in our nation full-time. So the killing will continue, and God's judgment is sure to come. So the question is this, when God judges a nation, what happens to the people in that nation who love him and live righteously? Are they swept away with the unrighteous? Or does God preserve them like he did his children during the plagues of Egypt by sequestering them in the land of Goshen? I mean, does judgment like rain fall on the just and the unjust at the same time? We will find the answer to these questions in the small three-chapter book of Nahum. So join us as we discover how to confidently abide in him while our culture falls in around our ears as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I uh, want to go ahead and be candidly blunt in the very beginning. You know, we've talked a lot about things that could happen. I think it was last week or the week before I shared with you uh, the, the statement that we made back in January of 2021 of what we thought the next two years were going to be like. And of the six things that we talked about, five have already happened. And the uh, sixth one is beginning to have rumblings of that right now. But what we need to understand is that God's patience doesn't last forever. Billy Graham many years ago said that if God doesn't, and this is like 40 years ago, if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And we are much further down the Sodom and Gomorrah line today than we were when Billy Graham made that statement. We as a nation are doing everything we can to bring on the judgment of God because the people who are doing that have crossed this Rubicon. They've crossed this, and I'm going to talk about this in Romans 1 in just a second. They've crossed this final rejection of God, which brings upon it the result of having a depraved mind. The uh, church, of course, is not immune to this because take just the uh, abortion issue. Um, You know, in January of, uh, I guess, 1973, the Supreme Court ruled in Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, and pretty much uh, solidified on a federal level a woman's right to have an abortion. And uh, the church at that time took a position. The church says this is wrong and this is not right. And so therefore you had the influx of crisis pregnancy centers, of which my wife and I uh, ran one for many years. You had life change. Do you remember those? Life change where people would stand out on you know, there's miles long of people holding signs out that says, you know, Jesus heals and forgives. And uh, what did they say? Like abortion kills or something of that nature. When is the last time you ever saw a life change? 20 years ago? 25 years ago? In the 80s? Nobody even does that anymore because nobody cares because we've kind of accepted it as the law of the land. I don't know if you've ever been to a... Um, uh, a place where they perform abortions, an abortion center. Um, Many years ago, Karen and I went uh, because it was a girl we were trying to intercept and talk to her. And it's the most depressing place ever. These cars come in and these young girls step out, sometimes with a boyfriend, sometimes not, sometimes with their mom. And you know they're going into that room and something's going to happen that will kill an innocent life and really affect that woman forever. It's a terrible thing that's going on. And so we rejoiced last week because all of a sudden the Supreme Court ruled and they said Roe versus Wade was ruled improperly and therefore the decision for abortion goes back to the states. Doesn't mean abortion is illegal. Goes back to the states. And, um, you know, the church rallied around that and that's a great victory. And for the pro-life movement, this is the biggest win they've had in 60 years. So it's a, it's a very positive thing. But by and large, the church doesn't care. I mean, we don't care. 
We're too busy making a living. We're too busy living our own lives, doing the stuff we want to do. We got our blinders on. We don't want to talk about maybe coming judgment. We don't want to talk about bad times happening. We don't even want to talk about the return of Christ because we sometimes have have such an arm-length relationship with Jesus that spending forever in heaven with him on something we can't control is unsettling to us, which is crazy when you think about it. What strengthened the church in centuries past was the promise of heaven. What can you do to me when I know my future is secure in heaven? Remember this truth from 1 Peter chapter 4. When judgment comes, it says, for the time has come for judgment. Where? Uh, Washington? Our school systems? Hollywood? Maybe if tsunami come and just obliterate it off the map. No, no, no. When it comes, it begins with us. It begins in the house of God. Why? Because we're supposed to be light in darkness. We have been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And that's not to make our life better on this earth, it's to stand against the onslaught of the enemy. So it is time for the judgment of God to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, how terrible is it going to be for other people who don't know God? But nevertheless, it is judgment. When God judges a nation, what happens to the good people? It's a question the Jews had when they'd be judged by the Assyrians or judged by the Babylonians or judged by the Egyptians and judged by the Romans, where God would use them to chastise a nation. But what about us? What about the good people? I mean, does it rain on the just and the unjust when a hurricane comes through? Does it blow down everybody's house? Even the the God-fearing people and the non-God-fearing people? I mean, when cancer strikes, does it strike only bad people or does it strike good people too? What happens when the judgment comes on a nation to the people who follow him? The book of Nahum speaks about that, and we're going to talk about that in in just a moment. But what happens? And, And if it is true that like in Egypt, where God would set the Jews up in Goshen, and it'd be dark in Egypt and light in Goshen, you can see a distinction there, is our spiritual life to the point that we can have the kind of faith to believe that God would do that for us. When God was getting ready to wipe out the entire earth, he found one family, Noah, and he built an ark and he preserved them during a cataclysmic worldwide judgment. Now, he didn't do that to Noah's buddies, his golf buddies, people he maybe went to church with, but he did it to Noah and his family. Was there a certain level of devotion and righteousness that Noah had that separated him from everybody else? Were they the only people on the planet that followed after God? Or did they raise to a certain level that God preserved them? I mean, these are questions, questions we all are going to have, questions the Jews had and the Christians had during the uh, Holocaust and during the terrible times that took place in Nazi Germany. I mean, you had Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemuller, many of the other ones were grappling with this, this question here. I mean, where does prayer end? Where does our faithfulness begin? How powerful is faith against this Third Reich during that time? So the good news last week was eclipsed by the bad news this week. And Biden stood up and issued an executive order. And the executive order pretty much just strengthened you know, the existing state laws right now, and they basically formed other uh, government agencies to make sure that uh, abortion is legal in our land. And I mean, it's like, as soon as, soon as our nation begins, just a little bit, a glimmer of hope, all of a sudden the Biden administration and all the uh, progressives and the people that are with him decide that, no, we've got to double down, triple down on this Holocaust. So, James Dobson wrote an email. This is his take on the Biden executive order regarding abortion. Uh, James Dobson is 86 years old, just a mainstay of the uh, pro-life movement. Here's what he said. Since this morning, President Biden signed an executive order promoting abortion. Our government now is promoting the slaughter of children, like Moloch and Baal. 
Every provision in the order seeks to ensure that as many abortions as possible occur in America, even after the overturn of Roe v. Wade. While he positions this as an effort towards protecting the reproductive rights of women, this is nothing less than an attempt to proliferate murder of our most vulnerable children. The word is murder. Murder. At every abortion clinic, murder takes place. And the church does nothing. They marched the Jews into the ovens at Auschwitz and Ravensbrück and other concentration camps, and the church in Nazi Germany did nothing. He continues, the executive order promotes emergency contraceptive, the so-called morning-after pill, as well as medica medication abortions, which present great risk to women. Another provision promises added security for abortion clinics, but does nothing to protect crisis pregnancy centers currently being attacked across America by pro-abortion extremists. Just like our federal government, our Department of Justice refuses to enforce the laws that will stop Supreme Court justices from being harassed, which is a felony. But we're not enforcing those laws because our nation is moving towards an agenda. It is both tragic and infuriating to see at the highest level of our government such an obsession with continuing to destroy innocent children in the womb. The president further stated that ultimately Congress is going to have to act to codify Roe into federal law and encourage pro-choice voters to go to the polls in November. For those who love our unborn children, we must continue to let our voices be heard and most certainly this equates to voting in a manner that promotes the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. So that you will know, and I know many of you do not, probably most of you do not stay connected with these pastor groups and stuff of that nature where certain issues are batted around among people of different persuasions of the faith, but there is a movement now a movement in fundamental, orthodox, Bible-believing churches to expel from their congregations people who adhere to the what we would call the democratic position. Abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, people who have a non-biblical view of life. Do you realize what that's going to do to the church? When that happens, it's going to bring upon it unbelievable persecution in America. And there's a groundswell of churches who are beginning that process now. Now, the idea is the fact, how can you be in a fellowship of believers and believe that it's okay to murder a child in their mother's womb? How can you be in a fellowship of believers and not believe what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, about gender roles, about you name it? about what gets you canceled in our culture today. These are things that are now happening. You need to know that in every instance in scripture and in every instance in history, when a nation practices a fantasy, when a nation begins to kill unborn children, within 60 years, that nation ceases to exist. God brings a judgment on those nations. He protects his little ones, even if the church or the political apparatus doesn't. And when God brings judgment to a nation, he doesn't do it through elections. You've seen what he did to Israel. You've seen what he's done to other world empires. He uses dramatic ways. He crushes economies. He has other nations attack them and take them over. They begin to decay from the inside out. And we're in even a worse situation because we're moving into this great area of deception because of the end times. And we know that Jesus is coming soon. In America, whether you want to accept it or not, we are now beginning to experience the judgment of God. And it is here. I shared this with you a couple weeks ago. I want to just hit three high points in Romans chapter 1, verse, beginning in verse uh, 18. Here's what it says. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he goes on to talk about what they say and what they do, that they decide that they're right and everybody else is wrong and narcissism becomes the mental illness of the land. And because they don't glorify God, they they talk other people into not glorifying God. They disrespect him. They want nothing to do with him. So because of that, what God does is he gives them over to their own sins. How God judges a nation is to let the people of that nation experience what they want. I don't want a relationship with God. I want to be able to sleep with anybody I want to. I want to be able to do anything I want to do. I want to be able to just shake my fist in your face, God, and suffer no consequences. Every time God judges a nation, it follows this process. He says this in verse 24. Okay, this is what you want. Here's what I'm going to do. One. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature, their bodies, each other, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. First, a sign of the demise of a nation is the judgment of God on sexual promiscuity. And we saw that beginning in the 60s. And of course, in a rock and roll age in the 70s and in the 60s, of course, it was you know, make love and not war and free love and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, birth control pills became popular. And then all of a sudden, when you had unwanted pregnancies, we had to have abortions because no one could suffer the consequences of that. So we kill an innocent child because we refuse to control our own bodies. And then it just moves on. I've shared this with you a hundred times. You know, when Gone with the Wind came out, all of a sudden there was a four-letter profanity in that movie. And pastors would rail on the fact that soon every movie would be chocked full of profanity and people will actually have pornography pumped into their homes 24-7. It's the vilest thing out there and it's part of our culture right now. We don't even care. Most Christians watch anything they want on television with no filtering because they don't care. It's just part of their nature. So we had the sexual revolution took place. But that wasn't enough. Verse 26, this is phase two. For this reason, God gave them over to vile passions. Oh, worse than just sexual promiscuity. Oh, yes. For even their women exchanged the natural lust for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. All of a sudden, it was a homosexual revolution. Now, if you watch television, the coolest people, the nicest people, the ones that are so smart, they're always the gay people. You can't hardly watch a commercial anymore or even a Hallmark movie that doesn't have some sort of homosexual twist to it. It's like the most popular thing out there. And it's a natural progression where we move into the second phase of God's judgment. God is not judging a nation because of homosexuality. Homosexuality is a judgment God brings on a nation that he's bringing low. He did it to Greece. He did it to Rome. He's done it. He did it to England. It's shocking how it all follows this path. In 1999, nobody ever talked about homosexuality. And now, if you say anything about it, something's wrong with you. And then we moved from homosexuality to bizarre things, with crazy things, like our school system now is having a debate whether or not we're going to call mothers mothers or birthing persons in our school system. So you've got a third grader in there that we're teaching a third grade girl that she's not going to grow up and be a mother. She's a birthing person. But so can Frank over here if he decides he wants to be a girl. We have a Supreme Court judge who could not define the definition of a woman because if she did, she wouldn't get the job. It's insane what's happening. That's the third level of this judgment. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, a mind that is 
just totally perverted to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all, all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, which is fornication, wickedness, covetedness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. I mean, you just read through these and you grow numb to them until you look at these individually and realize how horrific it is for a culture to experience this. Evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, gosh, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedience to parents, and you got the uns, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, who know the righteous judgment of God. They know that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. This is where we are as a culture, like it or not, this is where we are. And the sad part about it is, the sad part about it is when a culture reaches the debased mind, never in the history of mankind has that culture recovered. Never. And that's where we are. God is getting ready to unleash his judgment on our nation. You see it here, the judgment of sexual promiscuity, the judgment of homosexuality. And as quickly as that came on the scene and got cemented in our culture, now it's this insane stuff that you can't even get your mind. How, how, wait, 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 wait a second. Wait, so you're a logical person and you mean to tell me that if Tim decides that he wants to identify as a woman, even though he doesn't have a womb, a uterus or ovaries, that he can have children? Well, yes. I, I can't even talk to somebody like that. I mean, there's no logic. The mind is twisted and debased on something that's only about what they believe. So what do we do? We go back to that question. What happens when God judges a nation to those people who love him and serve him? What happens to them? Is there a protection? Is there something we can do? Well, yes, yes. You can begin by getting your faith to grow, to get your faith to grow to a point that you're closer to him than you have ever been before. To have that kind of faith that if you're thrown in jail, and you're unjustly accused, and you're flogged and beaten, and it's at midnight, and you're chained in stocks, that you have the faith to realize God is sovereign and can do anything he wants to do, and you can sing praise songs to him in the midst of that turmoil. Does the church have that kind of faith today? Not as you notice. Do you? We talk about being closer to the Lord than you ever had before. And if the closest you've ever been was a 10, are you a 10 now? And if not, your faith is less than it was at some point in time. And it's always because we've got our eye off the ball. We're dealing with something else. We're more encouraged about paying off our house or, or building a business or raising our kids than we are serving and loving him. Do you have the faith to believe, to believe that if there was no food and all you had was a couple salt fish and a few barley loaves, that God could and would actually multiply it to take care of your needs and the needs of those around you? Well, sure I do. So therefore I don't have to do anything about that. I, yeah, yeah, I know God can do that. Really? You got that kind of faith? You got that kind of faith that you're walking to the temple and you see this man that's been there for years, for decades. And all the religious people have walked past him and stood coins in his cup. But you stop and say, silver and gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Have that kind of faith? You can. And we need it more than ever. That's what we've been talking about, becoming a faith prepper. Preparing your faith for uncertain Actually, they're uncertain times, but they're certain to come ahead. How do we do that? Oh, we trust God at his word. It's really simple. We trust what he says more than we trust what we think 
what we see, what we've been taught is true. And when we're talking about having faith and trust and confidence in him and his word, they're not just words. You actually have to put yourself in a situation to prove that those things are true, to live that way. Otherwise, your faith is nothing more than meaningless words. Oh, yeah, I believe. Well, why do you still worry? I don't know, but I believe. I believe. I believe this and I believe that. Sure, sure, sure. I've got that. I can't tell you, um, I can't tell you how powerful the Lord is pressing upon me about this faith prepper thing. And that's just, maybe it's a bad phrase coined. It's this growing our faith to the point that we have total confidence in God and total understanding in God and total trust in God that he will do what he claims to do. Well, the uh, king is coming by, and uh, everybody better bow. And if you don't bow, uh, he's going to throw you in this fiery furnace over here. It's going to be bad for you. And, well, yes, you know, Lord, forgive me, but I'm going to bow. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. Well, do you realize if you don't bow, we're going to throw you in this fiery furnace? And when we throw you in this fiery furnace, what God is going to be able to rescue you from my flames? It doesn't matter, they said. Doesn't matter whether or not we perish or we don't perish. Fact is, our God can do anything he wants, but I will not bow to your God. What kind of faith do they have? The kind of faith that's written in our scripture. The kind of faith that we're supposed to emulate our life after. The kind of faith that is available to you and me if we put him first and trust him. So that's what I want us to do this week. Hope we can go through this together. I'm just going to show you what I did. By the way, uh, go ahead and turn to uh, Nahum chapter 1. We've spent quite a bit of time teaching you how to ask questions of the Bible text, of trying to understand exactly what they say. And so what I did is I uh, asked the Lord to lead me to some passages that just have to do with faith, just faith and trust, promises of faith, what can happen with faith, how to acquire more faith. I mean, do you realize that uh, what, what spurred on the Reformation is uh, Martin Luther was looking at a passage in the book of Romans which simply said, the just shall live by faith. Remember that? And all of a sudden it opened up his eyes to the fact that it's not works like with the Catholic church, but by faith, the just shall live by faith. And, and so the, the Reformation was birthed with just that phrase, focusing on faith, um, it, it, accumulating in uh, Martin Luther's mind. But you know what he didn't focus on? Is the word live. The just shall live by faith. Well, I understand faith in salvation, but that's not what it's talking about here. The just, the righteous, those that follow God, shall live day in and day out shall live by what they do and what they don't do, shall live what determines their decisions and their course of actions, shall live by faith. Well, faith in who? We know that. How is that appropriate? How in the world do we live by faith? So what I did is I just took some verses and I went through them rather quickly and I just made some comments. I uh, asked the Lord to just, I, I, well, I asked questions of the passages. And some of the verses you have here, you'll have just a couple of questions that I've asked. You may use that as a starting point, or you can ask questions yourself. There's, a, I don't know, about 20 of them on here. And what I would like you to do this week is take one and do exactly what I've done and just read it, read it in context, try to figure out what it says, and then ask yourself, do I or do I not believe this? Because we have a tendency of, of quoting scriptures as affirmations, but not really understanding what they say or believing what they mean. The first one is a classic example. 1 John 5, 4 through 5. And again, you can go back and read it in context. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our, or if you want to make it personal, your faith. I, I, I don't, uh, faith in what? Well, what are we talking about here? He who overcomes the world is he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. 
Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. I'm reading this. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, my faith. My faith is the victory that overcomes the world because I am born of God, because I'm one of the whatever. And he, who is he that overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. What, that's it? Everybody in here believes Jesus is the Son of God. I believe Jesus is the Son of God probably even before I got saved. Um, If you ask any Christian, the fundamental belief you have to have to become a believer is that Jesus is the Son of God. Is that it? Well, if that's it, is your faith overcoming the world? So I started asking questions myself. How does our faith overcome the sin, evil, and destruction in the world? How does our faith overcome the evil, sin, and destruction in my own life? What is the object of our faith that fills this promise? It obviously is that Jesus is the Son of God. But how do we have more of that faith? What do we need to do to experience this overcoming power in our lives? And forgive me, forgive me if you have this overcoming power in your life and you're walking in perfect fellowship with the Lord and you're at 10 right now. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. What do we need to do to experience this overcoming power in our lives? Or do I simply believe in my head? Oh, Jesus is the son of God and not translate it down to my heart because in my head, it's obviously not enough because if so, I'm not overcoming. The world is overcoming. I mean, is there more to this overcoming life in Christ that I'm missing? So I go back and read it again. Is this verse about me? For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Okay, I am a whatever that is born of God. You are a whatever that is born of God. And I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe he's the Son of God? Yet I cannot say my faith has overcome the world. I still struggle in sin. I still have my doubts and live in lukewarmness more than not. I believe there is more to the Christian life than I've experienced. There has to be. I can't believe this is all there is. Yet I don't know how to move from where I am to where I want to be in my relationship with him, to experience the higher Christian life, to experience this oneness and commune with God that surpasses all understanding. How was that even done? So you begin to ask questions. That's very bluntly with you. These are the ones I did when I read that verse. Lord, what am I missing? What am am I not seeing? Well, with me, it's the not acting out on what I believe or keeping it in my head academically. Then in my heart, where the disciples lived, where my spiritual heroes live, where when you and I live there, we experience our tens, and when we don't, we experience something far less. I wish that you were hot or cold, 10 or one, love me or hate me, but because you're just satisfied with nothing, with something lukewarm, with not really caring that much, I will project vomit you out of my mouth because I find that kind of spiritual life nauseating. And if we're quite honest, that's pretty much the kind of life most of us have experienced in church. But it doesn't have to be that way. It can be different. It needs to be different. You can read these when you get home. I've added some verses the Lord showed me as I kind of went through them. But where I want you to stop, we're going to finish our rest of our time together here is in Nahum chapter one, because this is where God really got my attention. Because the question I needed to have answered was, what happens to righteous people when God's judgment falls on a land? So I looked at Nahum and the verse that stopped me was verse number seven. And it says this, the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. As a matter of fact, when I did a Google search of verses on faith and trust, this one popped out. 
And then that's like reading a psalm or a proverb. Yeah, it's just an affirmation about God. It makes a whole lot of sense. And so you go back to Nahum and you read the context and realize that is the only positive thing said in this entire chapter. Do you remember the story of Nineveh? Uh, Jonah was called to go speak to Nineveh. He didn't want to go. Nineveh were, uh, the Ninevites were terrible people. They lived in these great walled cities. The uh, talks about the fact that that they had these 100-foot walls around Nineveh. They had a 150-foot moat gumming to the wall, and that moat was 60 feet deep. I mean, it, back in that day, it was pretty much impenetrable. And so Jonah showed up at Nineveh, and as Chuck Missler always said, he preached a message that says, 40 days, you're going to get yours. They had no heart for the message, and a revival broke out in Nineveh. Nineveh repe- repented of their sins from the king all the way down to the common worker. One of the greatest miracles in the entire Bible is Jonah's half-hearted, non-committed evangelistic crusade in Nineveh. Hundred years have passed now by the time of Nahum, and Nineveh has gone right back to what they did before. They had spurned God's love and his grace. They had tasted of his glory, but they'd gone back to serving their own gods, serving Baal and Moloch. And and you will find that they're all tied up with just money and finances. They don't have time for God anymore. They've gone from being hot for him to lukewarm again. So God sends Nahum to preach judgment on Nineveh, on the good people there, which were very few, and the bad people. And if you read this, and I I am going to read not the whole chapter, but if you read this, it is nothing but a horrific judgment God is bringing on a nation who did have a relationship with him, but forsook it and spit in his face and went their own way, much like our own nation. Chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of the burden against Nineveh, the book of visions in Nahum. Here's what he says. Number verse two, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. God is jealous of your relationship with him and you have forsaken him and gone after other gods and he avenges. As a matter of fact, verse two says the Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemy. It's been a hundred years, Nineveh. Therefore, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Just because judgment hasn't fallen doesn't mean judgment's not coming. The Lord had his way in the whirlwind, in the storm, and in the clouds or the dust of his feet. In the Old Testament, these are three words that describe how God reveals himself to men in a whirlwind, in a cloud, in a storm. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the flowers of Lebanon wilt. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Verse 8. We'll skip seven, verse eight. For with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time for while the tangled like thorns and stumbling like a drunkard, he keeps talking about the fact that he's bringing his judgment. So let's assume that this is the kind of judgment God is going to bring our nation. We've had many opportunities to repent and we refuse. We continue to do sins and and hurt the innocent of those. Pedophilia is uh, something that's rampant today. Abortion. I mean, Jesus said, whoever causes one of his little ones to stumble should die a horrific death. Remember? So God says this in verse number six, who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. And then there's good news because you and I are asking this question, Lord, is this going to happen to everybody? And I understand, you know, 
these terrible people who do these terrible things, but I'm just a simple man who loves the Lord and is trying to raise his family in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's not my fault I live in this nation at this time. It's not, I'm not making any of these decisions that Hollywood is making. I'm, you know, I'm partaking of those things, but I'm not, you know, actually producing those. I mean, come on. Are you going to do this to me as well as those people? Is there no grace, no mercy, more? No. Is there no hope for those people who have a desire to serve you righteously, even when you're bringing your judgment upon a nation? And so the Holy Spirit has Nahum write verse 7 in the middle of judgment. And verse 7 says this, the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. I've got six verses of trouble and verses that follow verse seven about trouble. And so the Lord is good and is a stronghold for who? In the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. He knows those who trust in him. As you can see on your sheet, I wanted to look up some of these words so I could understand exactly what it says before I could ask the Lord to show me what it means. The Lord is good. It's a moral excellence. The Lord is perfect. There's no sinister agenda with him. There's no unforgiveness in his heart. There's no, I'm going to get it my way. I don't care how you feel. The Lord is good. He's good. And he's described as a stronghold. Stronghold means refuge, fortress, shelter. It's a place that people run to for assistance or protection. The Lord is good. As he's pouring his judgment out on a nation, the Lord is good. Even in that judgment, and as a stronghold where people can run to for safety and protection in that day of trouble. And as you see, the word trouble means distress, anguish. Literally, it's an oppressive state of physical, mental, social, or economic adversity. It means when everything is falling apart at the seams. And he knows those who trust him. Wow. So there's two classes of people here. There's those who don't trust him. And there's those who do trust him. And he doesn't say anything about those who don't trust them, except judgment is here. But for those who do trust, it says he knows them. What, like know them like, hey, Frank, hey, what, I, I, I know you. you. You and my high school together, right? No, that's not what the word means. I've often told you that the greatest treasures in truth our truth treasures in scripture are found in very small words. Here in the Hebrew, we have the word no. The word no in Hebrew is yada. Well, I, I understand yada for no, but I also understand in the Greek, there's a whole bunch of different words that mean no. Gnosko means to know emotionally, to know experientially, to choose to place your favor upon. Edo means to know like intellectually, but we're in the Old Testament here and the Old Testament is not near as precise as the Greek is. So what we do is we go back to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, like translated like in the third century BC. And we see exactly what word is translated for yada. And the word is gnosko. Gnosko, the most blessed and powerful four-letter word you're going to find in Scripture. Gnosko. It's used for Jesus's relationship with the Father. It's used for uh, Adam knew his wife. Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. It has to do with a, a choosing to know something experientially. It's putting your favor on someone. It's loving someone. It's bringing someone close to you. It's a whole lot more than just knowing intellectually. If it was knowing intellectually, then the word would have been Edo, but it's not. In the Septuagint, it's Gnosko. So I'm asking some questions. The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. To who? To who? 
and he knows. He's placed his favor upon. He's reached out to. He's chosen. He's shown his love and affection on those who trust in him. Trust in him. I have on your sheet, the bottom of the first page, just various ways that Jesus used that word gnosko. And it's in John chapter 10, there are powerful passages talking about him knowing his sheep. I'm a good shepherd and I know my sheep. Uh, meaning like, like know like uh, that's Bob and Frank and Bill and Mary over here. No, 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 I, I know that I've chosen my sheep and I am known by my own. I experientially with passion and love and acceptance sovereign choice, choose my sheep and my sheep know me experientially as the father knows me. Oh, now that's a whole different relationship. Same word as God knows the son. Even so I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus knows us, Gnosko. We are known by him. Gnosko, in the same way the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. Same word in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. And he knows those who trust in him. That's the qualifier. It means to seek, to make refuge, to take refuge. It literally means uh, like going up under a tree in the middle of the sun for shade and protection. And he knows us. Let me just draw this to a close. It appears from here and many other scriptures I've been looking at later that maybe I'll send you out a, uh, a message on this week or next week that God takes special protection on those who truly belong to him, truly belong to him. If you ran a business and all of a sudden economic downturns came and you had to let go, let's say you had five employees and you had to reduce your employees by 60%. Three of my employees have to go. Two of them I will keep. Who would you keep? Who would you keep? Well, my best ones, my best ones. And what, what are the best ones? The best ones are the ones that don't complain. The best ones are the ones I can trust. The best ones are the ones that always show up on time, that work really hard, that I can count on when, when things are, are going tough. I mean, they, they have earned by their faithfulness and their trust and their fidelity, they have earned the right to stay when the rest of them are gone. You will find as God pours out his judgment in our nation, that God will, will protect his people. I don't know to what degree. I don't know what that looks like. I know, only know what history has shown us and what the scripture shows us. But the Bible says here that in the midst of Nineveh, in this coming calamity that was happening, that God is good and he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. Come to me, run to me. Who? those who trust in me, because I know you, I've chosen you, I adore you, I love you, you have experienced me, or you, you have experienced my presence on an emotional, actual level. You have the faith to persevere. You have the faith to stay strong. You are you are mine. You belong to me. We have a tendency of thinking that everybody's equal. Just as long as you're saved, you're okay. And by the way, that is true. You're going to go to heaven and things are wonderful. But at the judgment seat of Christ, at the Bema seat of Christ, we will not all be equal. That's sobering for people who live in a Marxist society to realize, but we won't. We won't. There are certain crowns, there are certain positions. There are certain things that God will give for faithful followers of him. Same principle applies when God pours his wrath out on a nation. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you this week, 
to take these passages. I've made some of it easy for you by throwing some other verses in there that kind of amplify that, defining some of the words, even asking some of the questions that I have that I will answer on my own as I go through this this week, and ask the Lord to just use these verses to grow your faith. But then once your faith is grown, to live by faith, not live by fear or live by efforts or live by everything you can do to make your way in this world, because that's not what life's about. What life's about is building his kingdom, but live by faith and see if next week when we come together, if our faith hasn't grown. Because I've been telling you this for probably three years, that we're running out of time. We are super running out of time now. Do you remember last week when I shared with you what I thought was going to come in the next two years? Do you remember the list I gave you? They're here. It's only getting worse. It's only getting worse. Is that a time for fear? No. Is it a time for trepidation? No. Is it a time to draw close to the only one who gives us his meaning and purpose in life? As a matter of fact, I think it's the last one. No, it's not. It's uh, it's the second one down on the last page, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Man, is this ever an indictment on our society today? Let your conduct be without covetedness. Oh, but I want more. I want more. I want more money and more stuff, and I want to look better and dress better and buy nicer cars. Give me, give me, give me. It's all about me. No. How do I let my conduct, how I live, not be about selfish me accumulating more? It's really simple. Be content with what things that you have. Because let me tell you what you do have. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when you realize that you possess it just in that phrase, the greatest gift ever. It makes all the trinkets and toys that we worry about mean so little. Amen? But it only comes to someone who is soaring spiritually. So let me encourage you. Go through these passages. I'll send you some emails out this week. And I would love to hear next week how the Lord has grown your faith to be more like him. Let me pray.